Welcome to the Mental Health in Schools podcast, designed and delivered by Anna Bateman. Hello, and welcome to House in Education podcast, a podcast dedicated to mental health leads in schools. I'm thrilled to have Chris Skinner from National Online Safety on our last episode of Series 2. We know there are positive aspects of the online world and screen use, like sharing experiences and creating a sense of belonging with others getting emotional support from like-minded people, self-expression and identity, and building on current relationships. But we also know it also increases anxiety and depression. Children report the fact that they have poor sleep, poor body image, there's cyberbullying, and the fear of missing out and creating addictive behaviours, all of which contribute to poor mental health. In this episode, Chris and I discuss a whole school approach the online and offline world, government policy, and how the school can help parents to promote digital resilience. First, a quick word from our sponsors. At Jigsaw PSHE, we believe that personal development and strategies to build mental well-being need to be taught and not left to chance. Jigsaw, the mindful approach to PSHE, leads the way in providing children and young people with its acclaimed, well-structured and developmental lesson-a-week learning experience in PSHE from ages 3 to 16. Detailed lesson plans and all the teaching resources needed, along with free updates and ongoing support, make Jigsaw an invaluable, relevant and fresh resource, taking the worry out of PSHE planning. Written by teachers for teachers. A mindfulness philosophy and practice underpins the whole programme. Statutory government requirements for relationships, health and sex education are amply covered. For more information, go to www.jigsawpshe.com or call at Jigsaw HQ. Now to the podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Halcyon Education Podcast. And I'm absolutely thrilled to have Chris here from National Online Safety with us. And I'm going to get him to introduce himself in a minute. We know young people are obviously online far more now, having been through lockdown. They're not only accessing social media, gaming, they're now actually educating themselves online as well. Our young people are online a lot more. And I think it's a really important part for schools to grasp and grapple with how we actually support and keep children and young people safe, and particularly when we're thinking about their mental health. So I'm thrilled, Chris, that you're coming and sharing your wisdom with, with all of us this morning. Thanks so much, Anna. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is Chris Skinner. I'm the Senior Consultant for National Online Safety. My background is I, I've worked in safeguarding for over 20 years. I've worked in that time with the police, social, social services, obviously schools up and down the country and internationally. Also worked on some very high-profile national safeguarding cases as part of serious case team reviews and things like that. So relatively experienced safeguarding professional for the best part of 20 years. But it's great to be here and, uh, and great to talk to you again. Excellent. Thank you. So our audience is mental health leads in schools and some of that remit we know will be part of curriculums. We know the PSHE curriculum and elements of that have become statutory are really helpful for safeguarding, aren't they, around how children and young people navigate the digital world. 
but sometimes that doesn't always translate well into action. We know that schools still deal with issues around sexting, for example, whatever, however many assemblies are done, doesn't always translate into behaviour. I'm just really fascinated to know whether there's anything that you can share around that, whether there's something that you think schools can can do, or if you've got strategies, reading, any, any sort of wisdom, we'll be very grateful for. No problem. It, it's such a, a huge subject area, as we know. And, you know, and, and, and certainly when I talk to the schools that, that, that we work with and, and, and certainly several keynote speeches on, on, on this very subject, I'm not aware of any other subject on the curriculum where the children are, frankly, in many cases, more empowered than the people teaching. And one trap that we tend to fall into, I think, as, as, as trusted adults, and I do it all the time, even though I work in online safety, we talk about online and offline as if they're two separate things. And as adults, we do that constantly because, of course, for us, and for us growing up, they were two separate things. But to children and young people today, there often isn't that distinction. You know, it's life, online and offline. There is no distinction between that. And particularly when we think about what happened in March and going into the lockdown, and then we think about uh, coming out of that lockdown period, and we think about bubbles that are in place now in schools, and we think about remote teaching and learning, implementing those sorts of things. In actual fact, children and young people were perhaps better coped to actually deal with that digital thing than, than we were as adults, to be perfectly truthful. And so I think that's a, that's a really crucial point to just bear in mind that we, we often talk about online and offline and actually to children and young people it's the same thing and lots of the same issues occur online as they do in the playground it's just that we have a different terminology for them and lots of those behaviors are, are further uh, emphasized in the online sense and just because it's online it doesn't mean it's something new it's stuff that we've been dealing with for actually quite a few years or perhaps not just using the technology that we're using or term uh, the terminology that we're using now to actually describe and actually uh, help with these issues clearly dfe have have, have gone uh, quite a quite a long way in relation to the keeping children safe and education statutory guides i have one or two concerns about the the, the, the statutory guidance in that figure. I wouldn't be me, Anna, unless I did what I did. <laughs> but particularly around SEN, um, and when we talk about SEN, and, and there's a line in keeping children safe in education, and I want to be very clear about this, kind of from the off, really, that talks about DSLs and deputy DSLs must have an understanding of the additional risks that children with SEN face online. I have a real problem with that as a sentence, personally. Okay. SEM is, is something that's really close to my heart for personal reasons that we won't go into, but but um, it's my view that children with SEM face exactly the same risk as mainstream pupils and exactly the same risks as you or I. And what differentiates us is our propensity not to fall foul of those risks. So I think rather than talking about additional risks, what the document should be talking about is heightened risk rather than additional. Now, I know I'm splitting airs when I say that, but I think it's quite an important differentiation yeah. that we need to make. And certainly in terms of reading what's advocated within keeping children safe in education, you've got things like Education for a Connected World available for, for download on uh, uh, teaching online safety in schools. They should be the minimum sort of requirements really in terms of looking at what the learning objectives and what we ought to be talking and teaching children and people but of course wouldn't it be easy and, and, and wonderful if we could read those two, two documents in isolation and be prepared for what's going to be thrown at us throughout the year because of course the online world 
very different to kind of lots of other subject matters that we talk about. Um, it's constantly evolving with constantly different apps, different levels of risk and those sorts of issues. So, mm. I think that's a really, really good point to make, isn't it? That there is no other lessons, are there, where young people actually know more than the, the member of staff in terms of subject knowledge. I love your point about heightened risks because that then relates not just to pupils with SEN, it's just vulnerable pupils generally or yeah. pupils who may even have just got into the online world, as it were, for the first time and may be more vulnerable because of that or have a more heightened vulnerability. You're absolutely right. Just thinking about then, how do we support schools beyond those sort of documents? Because I think you've mentioned before, I think it's a brilliant point that just doing a, a training session every year on online safety is just not going to hit the spot. To explain more, because I think it's just the right approach, really, with the approach you have at National Online Safety. What we're about is staying ahead of that curve, if you like, or, or giving our best efforts to, because even as a national, you know, I work in online safety. I work in this stuff day in, day out. Yeah. So the, your listeners have got my utmost respect of having to try and keep up to date with it. The reality of me being supposedly one of the foremost experts in online safety in the country is I've got a whole team of people who work for me who basically it's their sole job to keep you up to date with what's happening in the online world how on earth the DFE are realistically expecting designated safeguarding leads to do that in addition to day jobs as heads and deputies it's, it's kind of beyond me really we kind of made it our mission to enable conversations to take place and to keep those conversations being agile the reason for that is when we hit the marketplace just over three years ago now. At that time, most schools' approach to kind of online safety would be celebrate safer internet days once a year. No problem with that. But most schools' approach to online safety at that time was perhaps a bit of face-to-face training perhaps once a year. Typically, ex-police officers, something like that, would come into the school, do an assembly, talk to staff. The problem with that being, of course, we've already touched on it, the online world moves so, so quickly that that training would be out of date within a couple of weeks. So our approach to it is to basically equip our schools and date them monthly, and we do things that you've seen, our, our, our weekly parent guides and those sorts of things, to just enable those conversations and keep those conversations agile and ongoing. My view on this whole thing is, if anybody's listening and their approach to online safety is to tick a box and to take a training session once a year, please just reevaluate that, because you know, frankly, this is it's a huge area, and we can get bogged down and, and you know if you go and speak in your social circles of a weekend and you speak to people there it's something we never talk about but if you go and speak about online safety in your social circles there will be somebody in that social circle who knows somebody who has been affected or has been affected themselves by an online risk and typically they will talk about uh, predator-based risks Typically, they will talk about that because that's the stuff that hits the media and that's the stuff that pulls us on a very rudimentary level. But the reality of online is when you think about it, we not only do we have a multitude of apps, games, platforms that are already in existence and out there, we have new ones being produced every single day. And of course, those apps, games and platforms aren't static either. So one week, we may have a, a an app that doesn't have a chat functionality, for example. A week later, it could be developed to, to, to contain that chat functionality. One week, you may have a game that doesn't contain loot boxes, as an example. And suddenly, a week later, it's been developed to contain those loot boxes. I think we're at a really important differentiation that we need to make as well is it just it concerns me often that we talk about children and young people. And I know we'll come on to kind of the national picture uh, shortly, but 
But it can't really be a huge surprise to us because I know people in my social circle. You know, I'm, I'm Mr. Online Safety. I have people in my <laughs> social circle, adults in my social circle that I, help, I look at and I think, wow, look at, look at the risks that your relationship being which you post on social media and yeah. um, your own online reputation. But look at the amount of time you're spending on that device when you only have to go to your local if you, if you can, can still go to a local pub, I'm assuming, uh, by the time this goes out, and, and, and look around and see how this technology has impacted on all of us. And it's almost like as a society we've walked into this. So we shouldn't be alarmed or surprised that actually our children are suffering with health and well-being issues as a, as a direct result of being exposed to this, because frank, frankly, many trusted adults are as well. Something happened on Twitter within education. Some of the teachers have been duped by somebody who'd really been putting on fake things. And I, I was like, wow, there's an explanation. None, none of these teachers we would necessarily say are vulnerable. Or, but actually, how easy was it to get sucked into a fake account where people were spending time helping this person and then finding out that it was all just fake? And I'm sure these teachers were just had that heightened awareness of actually this could happen to anyone. It's not we have walked into this. And I'm, I'm not going to get political on this. I know I, I absolutely can't do it. You know full well. That I can't do it. <laughs> but when, when we look at it and we, we we talk about this explosion of fake news, and it has it. You know, if you think back over the last kind of three years, four years perhaps, fake news has absolutely exploded within yeah. technology and the impacts of that. And some of that, frankly, has been state sponsored. How have we walked into this situation? What have we done in relation to our children? Technology moves down through the ages, so the access to the technology. You know, as soon as technology becomes accessible, it becomes cheaper over a course of a period. Mm. And we've got situations I know of at six and seven-year-olds who have a five, six hundred pound smart device. Yes. But their parents have signed them up to um, and agreed to the terms and conditions around the usage of that. And I often have this line on that, you know, one of the, one of the biggest lies um, online is I have read the terms and conditions and I agree to them. So that's a simple fact. And it's the same with mobile phones. We've got a situation where parents are going out and they're purchasing this, this technology, they're purchasing mobile phones, smartphones, um, and they're signing up to the terms and conditions without actually understanding it. And the, the reality of, of that is if you were to go into a mobile phone shop, member of staff there said well actually I'm going to give you this device and your child's going to take it with them and we're going to track their movement everywhere they go we're going to log records of their, their voice we're going to log all of their interactions online but actually we're going to follow them for the rest of their life as soon as you sign up this contract I just wonder how many parents would really sign on the dotted line there and then but the reality is of course they don't say that but the reality is that's actually what's happening and in a lot of cases and particularly around fake news as well and then this is something that's quite close to my heart as well when we talk about children and young people, and of course, the tech companies who, as you know, I can't get on my, my soapbox about the tech companies. When you think about them and, and, and their line on this, which is actually we have recommended age ranges and you can't sign up to uh, TikTok unless you're over 12 and you can't sign up to Facebook unless you're over 13. The reality is that peer pressure has come down through the ages yeah. and that peer pressure around children and young people then down to their parents. Parents will do things like they will keep their child. What harm can it do if I sign my eight-year-old up to Facebook and I keep their password? Well, the harm that you're doing is immediately to bypass the age restriction you put in a false date of birth. As soon as you put that false date of birth in, when that data becomes harvested, when that data becomes harvested, guess what? Your child is suddenly a minimum of five years older than what you than what they actually are. So the content that's being pushed towards them is immediately age inappropriate you know, from day one. When we start off on that footing, 
what seems to be completely innocuous and innocent actually isn't because we need to understand where that data is going and what's being pushed to us and why people are doing these things. So we've mentioned social dilemma a couple of times. Incredible. I really. And now a short break to hear from our sponsors. CPOMS is an online system for schools to manage pastoral concerns and events and is now used by over 10,000 schools. The main reason it works so well is that the categories of information a school logs on CPOMS are chosen by the school so that the concerns you face that are unique to your community or individuals can be logged accordingly. It saves a huge amount of time compared to doing things on paper Chronologies for pupils, or school-wide reports, can be generated quickly. The Service Point support team provide an incredible standard of service and one of the main reasons that CPOMs are spread by word of mouth to so many schools. For more information, go to www.cpoms.co.uk where you can also book a demo for your school. Now back to the podcast. Anybody listening to go and watch Social Dilemma, for, for, for me personally, it really quite resonated and, and landed in quite a deep way uh, and scared the heck out of me. <laughs> I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, on the Social Dilemma and, and that as a piece of programme. I deal with this stuff day in, day out, and it was incredibly powerful viewing. There's no two words about that. And again, likewise, I would urge anybody listening to this to watch The Social Dilemma. I have to be honest, there weren't an awful lot of surprises in there for me, which is a good thing, you know. I, yes. I have to be privileged with I'd be very surprised if there were. This whole move towards shaping content around users and creating echo chambers, and we refer to them as echo chambers, and, and particularly, you know, things like QAnon. This is what I see as a real impact for many children and young people, is rather like in a playground, people will levitate towards friends and they will have friends and they will have interests and they'll have communities of interest. Online, people can get sucked into these communities of interest, and if they're not very careful, they can create what's referred to as echo chambers, where everything that they put out is correct because it's reinforced by somebody else within that community, within that group, as their view too, because their whole group, their whole community are echoing those views. And anybody outside that group who has a slightly different view is strange and they don't think normally. Obviously, that is amplified in the online sense, and particularly where vulnerable children are concerned. That can be a real issue. When we talk about the social dilemma and we look at the shaping of content around users and the reasons and rationale behind that, mentioned earlier, state sponsored, I've been a bit tongue-in-cheek when I say that, but the reality is, without a shadow of a doubt, governments and organisations, big, big organisations, are actually purposefully shaping content to affect behavioural change, to to affect voting change, to affect voting. We know that these things are going on. We know that that's happened. Uh, We know that there are reports into these sorts of things. And the technology is there to enable them to do it. I'm not going to point any fingers as to who it might be. But it's not a surprise to us as trusted adults. And yet we talk about these things and we talk about the impact of them. And yet we still have a situation where trusted adults are going blindly into mobile phone shops and signing up for a smart device for a seven-year-old. I'm not sure what it is. I, 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 I kind of got to this, this, this point where I believe most parents, and in my job, I have to, have to believe that 99.9999999% of parents want to safeguard their child. Of course they do. Um, If they didn't, frankly, I I couldn't do the job that that, that I do without believing that. But the issue is most parents don't know what they don't know. 
Yeah. And in actual fact, what I do believe is that a lot of them do know that they don't know it. So what they don't like to do is almost engage with the school and admit to there being a vulnerability around their child because of something that they don't know. So, so my theory around that is that as a society, we've kind of sleepwalked into this. And, and let's face it, you know, it's hard to believe, isn't it, that we could have these huge tech companies that are being exploited by governments. We could have huge tech companies that are exploiting us because nobody wants to believe that we're being exploited. We're not capable of developing device addiction, are we? We're not capable of uh, falling foul of persuasive design. And just on its rudimentary level there, when we think about Facebook, a classic issue, and I, and, I, and I refer to this all the time, I'm assuming a few of our listeners will be old enough to remember when the days you used to scroll down a Facebook newsfeed and you'd get to the bottom and then you'd have to click onto the second page and then you'd get to the bottom of that and you'd have to click onto the third page and then you'd see a status that you'd already seen, so by that point you've seen everything that's new and therefore you can log off. The never-ending scroll on Facebook that you have now was a purposeful ploy in terms of persuasive design to addict and to engage. We can talk about that as adults. And if you discuss that with anyone in your social circle, they will agree with you. But for whatever reason, when it comes to the peer pressure around their child, that kind of goes out the window. We forget about that. As adults, I guess we don't want to admit that we could be fooled by a tech company into becoming addicted to that device. And let's face it, one top tip that I'll give everybody is these social media platforms are free. Where do they make their money? Where do they make their money? They make their money from advertising and from clicks. How do they get advertising and clicks? By sucking the time out of your life. That's how. So the reality is, in terms of, of them making money, if something's free, it's not free. It's going to cost you. What it's costing you is costing you the time and your time and your clicks. And, and that's how they are making the profit in order to, to, to maintain that. And that is such a simple concept to, to understand. Yet, actually, I guess it crosses many of our values on just a humanitarian level, really. Yeah. So we put that to the back of our minds and say, that can't happen to me and that's not happening to me. But in actual fact, it probably is um, to quite a lot of people, really. You've mentioned a couple of times about parents and historically, from my experience, and I know from yours, when schools invite parents in, as you've said, to talk about it, to share how they can safeguard children, you get minimal engagement. But how do schools get around that? And I know National Online Safety have got some really good materials for schools to push out to parents. And I guess that's one way that you can reach parents. Absolutely. People who turn up for the opening evenings, the people who are engaged, invariably, it's probably the parents that we're less concerned about anyway, yeah. to be perfectly truthful. So the hard to reach parents are the ones that we want to target more and more. And I don't like stereotyping in that sense, but that's a fact, really. And as I said, my view is that because many parents know that they don't know this stuff, so they almost don't want to admit to there being a vulnerability around their child in front of the school. We take a slightly different approach. We use e-learning with parents. So, so how that works is we, we issue schools of URL, they issue that to their parents. Their parents go to that website and they register. And the great news is they can see who's registered, so by default they can see who hasn't. So they can yeah. target specific parents if they wish to. And as you know, we produce our weekly parent guides. When I talked earlier about enabling conversations and being agile, one way that we're agile and keep those conversations going is by the production of those weekly parent guides. We are really excited, really excited at the moment. We're just about to launch our app. 
our app is in end user tested at the moment so hopefully within a couple of weeks famous last words then we need to test it out, <laughs> no, but hopefully within a couple of weeks our new app um, will be available for download we've produced an app not because our platform was difficult to get to on some other devices or mobiles it, it certainly wasn't that's, that's not the case but very easy to access um, but what we wanted to get better at was push notifications exactly as you ah, so we want to get better at actually notifying people that there's a new guide out or there's a new training course out or there's a new webinar out where we can actually push these things to people's mobile phones in, in order to make them aware that, uh, that this is, or even where there's a, you know, a heightened risk or a specific issue to actually help with that engagement. And what we find is that taking that route parents are, are, are actually more engaged. Um, it's not for everybody, don't get me wrong, you're, you're never going to receive a 100% engaged parental engagement. But as I said earlier, I believe 99.999% of parents want to safeguard their child. They want to do yeah. it right. Of course they do. So when you give them the information that is accessible to them in their own home, it's hardly arriving in Coronation Street. I know that typically a parent will log on half past nine at night, 10 o'clock at night, you know, something like that. But they will log on and they will look at it and they will utilise yeah. it. And, and I guarantee you, most parents will go and they will download the guide to TikTok and they will download the guide to Fortnite and those sorts of things because these things are not made to them. And of course, on the on the, on the new app that I'm talking about, what's really important is the underpinning of knowledge. When we talked earlier about school staff and we talked about training and what training school staff may need, you know, my view on that is it has to be role specific. We've touched on SEN already. Mm. We know the role of the DSL. DSL has been statutorily responsible. So the training to school staff has to be role specific and it needs to be underpinned by knowledge. So what we've done with our app and what we're doing with the resource hub is we've now got over 100 videos in there on different risks, different issues. We wouldn't expect everybody to watch all of them, but no. they're there to help underpin the knowledge. So we have videos on persuasive design, for example, videos on loot boxes, on skin betting, on all of these different risks, um, in addition to the kind of online relationships that, that we talk about. And obviously we have our parent guys on there. So it's about giving people somewhere to go to underpin that kind of rudimentary knowledge that they have in the first place. So yeah. really excited that that's coming along in a couple of weeks. I've had a look at it myself. I don't think it's very far away, if I'm perfectly truthful, but I'm no tester. So uh, so I'm hoping that that, that, our, uh, that our youth testers are enjoying the experience. But yeah, really happy to be, uh, be able to be launching that very, very shortly. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing, Chris. And I think... If schools haven't engaged with you yet, then they really need to, because you guys are really trying to get ahead of the curve in so many ways, not just with knowledge, but but obviously, you know, putting out apps, putting out things that are just relevant and in the here and now. And we have to be doing that, don't we, to make sure that we're safeguarding our children. Yeah, thank you, Anna. It's nice to hear. I mean, uh, as you know, it's something that we can be quite passionate about. You certainly get very passionate from time to time on different talks. And I think from, from our perspective, it's about doing the right thing. It's, it's about making sure that we've got that information out there, that people can access that information and about getting the outcomes. And of course, the outcomes are safeguarding children. That's what it's about. It's not about ticking a box because the DfE tells us we have to tick a box. Frankly, I remain a little bit concerned. I remain a little bit concerned about government's ability to take action on these stuff, their appetite to take action on them. We've seen that they've consulted on the online harms white paper. We've seen very little follow-up to that. We also know that the tech giants have been absolutely woeful in trying to moderate themselves. Absolutely woeful. And for me, that is a, a major issue. These tech giants will not moderate themselves. They will pay lip service to what they're doing. They do pay lip service to what they're doing. You know, I believe Instagram a, a figure of 10,000 unacceptable images removed that violated their terms and conditions and those sorts of things. 
But the reality is that's a drop in the ocean. It's an absolute drop in the ocean. And these tech companies need to be held to account and they need to stand up to their moral obligations around their users. And unfortunately, their profit is getting in the way of that. Until government actually really do step up to the mark and actually do legislate against some of these companies, I'm afraid that we're going to be in this situation for, 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 for quite a while to come. I welcome the fact that they did the, the, the online hands white paper and now want to see some real action from them, if I'm honest. That was a while ago now. That's, what, three years ago? Uh, certainly getting on for two and a half years ago. We saw some movement on it in relation to specific platforms. I ended up on talk radio because there was an outcry that people weren't allowed to write exactly what they wanted to write on Twitter and they should be allowed to and one Twitter user very prominent Twitter user who everyone will have heard of I'm not going to mention her name because I don't want to give her any more publicity than she already has to be perfectly truthful had been banned from the platform and, and what an outrage because this person was, was, was entitled to express freedom of speech guess what you're not you never have been entitled to freedom of speech the reality is if you said something on a, a TV show or on a radio show or you put something in print you are open to a comebacks on that they, you know there are laws in place that will prohibit you from saying certain things frankly those laws should be on social media as well now i ended up as i say on on on, uh, on talk radio defending the fact that actually you shouldn't be allowed to put everything you want on to social media because people were, were, were appalled that you couldn't do that it's my account i must be able to write what i want no you can't you never have been able to so we did see the start of some action, but sadly it, it's kind of fallen by the wayside, um, I think. And, and I guess with everything that's going on in the world right now, that's to be expected. But yeah. certainly I would have expected more progress than what we've seen uh, today. Yeah, yeah. And I think the challenge with the absence of having the regulation, and you're absolutely right, the, the companies won't regulate themselves, not while they're making money. That's absolutely not going to happen. So we are waiting for governments to really step in. And in the absence of that, schools then have to almost be their own community, don't they? They then have to regulate that themselves as best as they can with the legislation that they're allowed to do to in order to safeguard the children in the school and the, and the wider community. And that's what we can control at the moment while we're waiting for for governments to really step in and, and, and safeguard our children and that dogged approach that you have that we want to try and instill in our schools of we can't just sit back and wait for crisis to happen. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that's often, you, you know, certainly historically, very sadly, that was the case. People would wake up to online safety after an incident, after an incident, because, of course, one of the main issues there, or one of the issues around here is children can often look manifestly well, but parents don't see what's behind the screen or what's coming through the headphones, and therefore it's all too easy to overlook this stuff. What I think we really need to be talking about, and I agree entirely with what you just said, keeping children safe in education does talk about a whole school community approach. Don't pay lip service to that. It is a whole school community approach. And actually, you know what? Let's not hide behind the statutory guidance. Let's actually create a community with a moral responsibility around our children and young people within the school, whereby we're all understanding of what the potential risks are and what the potential issues are. And let's empower everybody to be able to, to, to deal with that. And that's certainly where we come from, from an organisational perspective, as you know. And that's something that we're very, very passionate about. Well, I really want to thank you for your time, Chris, because I know how busy you are. So I really value the fact that you've shared your wisdom with us today. So thank you. It's been great speaking to you, Anna. You take care. And you. I do hope this episode has got you thinking. 
If you want to trust an organisation to help you with the mental health and well-being of your young people, and particularly in terms of developing digital resilience and safety, click on the link on the Halcyon Education podcast section on our website, particularly for our episode today, episode 12. There you will find the documents that were mentioned in the podcast and further information about national online safety. Until next time, take care. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast. For more information and support on this topic, go to the resources section on the website. That's www.halcyon.education forward slash podcasts.